0: week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell.
1: I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garda.
0: It's Thursday, January 19th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week.
1: A new book details the race to develop the life-saving cancer drug now called Imbruvica, from a Scientologist CEO to the secret of investor seeking redemption after the worst trade of his life. We talk with author Nathan Vardy.
0: We'll start with a look at the biggest news of the week in biopharma.
1: But first, a word from our sponsor. At Trade-Offs,
2: we like to get under healthcare's hood.
3: There are just all these sort of leaky pipes across the healthcare system, which, if tightened, would lead you to save money. We dig
0: into the numbers behind the policy. I will admit, I am a fangirl of the Congressional Budget Office. This... Who's not? Yes, they're amazing. When they drop their numbers, we all go running, right? Data,
2: research, it all informs our journalism and the stories we tell. Healthcare. Policy. People. Subscribe now to Trade-Offs. So I have seen in the news this week that as the many famous actors of the world make their way through the awards circuit, some of them are having to sit out by virtue of having contracted COVID at, for example, the Golden Globe Awards or the Critics' Choice Awards. And I was curious for the both of you, having attended, I guess, the biotech version of one or more of those things in the form of the J.P. Morgan (laughs) Healthcare Conference, whether you are suffering in the same way that Jamie Lee Curtis is.
1: I'm not. No COVID. Knock on wood.
3: (laughs)
0: Namesies, I took six straight days of daily rapid tests after, you know, starting from before I left um, up and through Monday. The reason I took six was because I then caught a cold from my four-year-old from preschool. So it's like I got through this conference with thousands of people from all over the world without a single germ, at least that I noticed in my own health. And then I caught this cold from my four-year-old. So daycare germs, they are so strong.
1: We should also mention... Uh, I guess I'm. I'm saying this today. Uh, uh, another media outlet is reporting that uh J.P. Morgan has no plans to move the conference.
0: No, from San Francisco to Miami. Planning going of course, to Miami we, didn't, re- we didn't report that.
1: We said we that they were they were thinking about it. But I guess maybe who knows? Maybe now we're all. St- should I say we're stuck in San Francisco for the foreseeable future? I don't know. But anyway, that's given the fact that we talked a lot about that last week.
0: That is such a bummer. OK, anyway, on to some happier news. Uh, <laughs> positive data in another respiratory virus that has been bothering everyone this winter and more seriously than bothering putting people to the hospital and uh, causing severe disease and, and death. Um, on that note, Damien, tell us about RSV.
2: <laughs> right. So RSV um, has become, I guess, an added scourge. you know. As everybody's focused on respiratory viruses in the form of COVID-19, we've seen a lot of coverage about how the winter months bring this compounding problem for hospitals, as you mentioned, and, and just for public health in general because of spikes in RSV. And so that has led to the development of some vaccines for RSV. And then the news of the week is that one from Moderna met its main goals in a phase three study, studying people over 60, um, and basically, I mean, the, the short version is it looks like the vaccine works, and perhaps most encouragingly from a public health angle, so too, according to data released in the past few months, do vaccines from Pfizer and GlaxoSmithKline for RSV. So this sets up what is really an ideal scenario, I think, for for vaccinologists and for, for public health people, where you might have a multitude of effective products soon to be available for this problematic vaccine. On the business side, it's kind of fascinating because what that means is you'll have presumably competition between three very large drug makers. I mean, two legacy uh, vaccine giants and then Moderna, which is sort of a vaccine giant in the making. And so it's kind of interesting news to pick apart in, in all of those contexts because the public health implications are obvious. The business implications for Moderna, which has been under, as we've talked about a lot, this pressure from Wall Street to find the next lucrative product as demand for its COVID-19 vaccine understandably wanes um, in all the countries in which it's available. But then also, it's it's an advancement of the story of messenger RNA. This is the next big thing for this technology, which Moderna doesn't solely own, but has become synonymous with. Their company name is derived from it. And so it sets in motion, I think, a lot of interesting narratives that we're going to see teased out over the years to come, both in terms of Moderna's business and how well it executes, but also, you know, we we talked about this before, the public perception of mRNA. In the future, people could face a choice when choosing to get vaccinated for RSV between a multitude of technologies. And we're going to find out what the COVID experience and experiment in some ways really means for mRNA.
0: Interestingly, Moderna's is the only mRNA, um, you know, RSV vaccine. Pfizer is uh, using a recombinant protein technology, as is GSK, and GSK has an adjuvant. And so, you know, there's all this discussion over the profiles of these vaccines, you know, the efficacy perhaps looking highest for GSK and now Moderna, um, the tolerability perhaps looking best for Pfizer. Um, We'll have to see how that ends up shaking out as we see, you know, more data over time. Then, of course, the durability of these vaccines vaccines will be a major question as well. But we're looking at potentially these getting on the market from Pfizer and GSK this year, early next year for Moderna. And then, of course, um, Pfizer is also working on um, a vaccine for pregnant people to protect newborns uh, in the first six months of their lives. And other companies are uh, working on protecting babies and toddlers with the vaccines or with an antibody drug in the case of um, another option in the marketplace. So um you know it's good that we're taking care of one of these diseases, and hopefully we'll start to see more success in in other things as well.
1: Yeah, and and getting back to something that you said, Damien, I, I do wonder. I don't know. I I, re- I saw someone that I follow on Twitter who who mentioned that they felt like the credibility or the trustworthiness of mRNA based vaccines um, took a big hit with COVID, and that therefore Moderna would be at a disadvantage with RSV. Uh, versus, you know, their two competitors who are are using different technologies. And I don't know, does that does that strike you as something that that people like out there in the world worry about that, you know, they 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 don't trust MRNA as a technology as a vaccine technology? Because I I guess I never felt that way. I don't know. But I don't know how how you are, Meg, or how you guys feel about it. I think there's
2: always a risk and I'm guilty of falling victim to this of getting kind of trapped in various online echo chambers and it's worth pausing and zooming out how many people even people who received mRNA COVID-19 vaccines have an opinion on mRNA as a technology i mean like we know that it is pretty reactogenic i think we all experienced um especially if you've had booster shots that it can be unpleasant Um, in the aftermath of your vaccine, and people may have opinions about that. But whether there's like a critical mass of people who might be candidates for an RSV vaccine in the future who have shaped like a hard opinion, positive or negative, on messenger RNA as a vaccination technology, I'm skeptical that 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 critical mass exists, but it can feel like it exists when you're watching, you know, well-informed and often well-intentioned people debate on the internet. But it is worth kind of like... Touching grass is the cliche, but like, you know, consider your neighbors, consider the people you see in line at the grocery store. Are they really that invested in this concept?
1: Yeah, that was sort of my take to Damien. And and the fact is, what's as you mentioned, as both of you mentioned, I mean, you you know, you got Moderna, who is sort of a newbie to the vaccine world, relatively speaking to the vaccine world versus a Pfizer and a GSK who are, you know, they've been you know, they have well established vaccine businesses. And so that might be the biggest challenge that Moderna faces is just going up against heavyweights like Pfizer and GSK.
0: A decade ago, the only treatment for the most common form of adult leukemia called CLL was punishing chemotherapy and the antibody drug Rituxin. Outcomes were poor and it was hard for patients to endure.
1: Then, a drug called Ibrutinib came along from a California-based company called PharmaCyclics. It transformed the outlook for patients with CLL. Some called it a miracle drug. Its story is in many ways a classic
2: biotech tale of doctors and scientists driven to find better options of billion-dollar stakes and of a lot of luck. But in others, mainly some of the characters involved, it's quite unique.
0: Joining us now is Nathan Vardy, whose book, For Blood and Money, dives into the quest to develop ibrutinib, now called Imbruvica, and its ultimate sale for $21 billion in 2015. Nathan, welcome to The Read Out Loud.
3: Meg, I'm so happy to be here with you guys. I really wanted to be on this podcast, so thanks for having me.
1: So Nathan, congrats on the book. Uh, You know, you were a senior editor at Forbes, mainly focused on Wall Street when you came upon this story. So tell us how you decided to write this book.
3: You know, for many years, I was a senior editor at Forbes, where I was responsible for the coverage of uh, big money investors, uh, you know, billionaires, hedge funds, private equity, that sort of thing. And I really love that job because um, I got to um, report on all the industries in the world, you know, through an investment lens, because all these people were doing different things, So healthcare one day and oil the next day and uh, streaming services, you know, you kind of get uh, to have a very dynamic uh, work life. Um, and in the period between 2010 and 2020, I would say that the area that I found the most interesting um, was, was biotechnology um, because as much as I love streaming services and apps, um, it, it just, felt to me like there was no other industry that could have as big an impact on human beings and, and was having as big an impact on human beings. And the interplay between the science and the money uh, was something that I just found fascinating. And in doing that, I, I stumbled a, a across this story, uh, the story of the development of BTK inhibitor drugs. And I just thought it was a great story. You know, uh, like when I went to the publishing houses with this, a lot of them were like, well, why aren't you writing about Humira? You know, like, well, you know, why, why aren't you writing about these drugs? And these drugs, they're no ads, um, these blood cancer drugs. <laughs> um, and I would say, well, you know, the development of the, that drug really wasn't that interesting, but this is a good story. And I think it kind of epitomized an era. And then the only other thing I'll say, Adam, is um, when I would talk to people in your industry in biotech, And I would tell them I was doing this. You know, people who didn't know this story would say, well, why why are you writing about that? Uh, And they were kind of confused about it. Um, But every person who I spoke to who knew this story always said the same thing. They always said, wow, I I always knew someone was going to write a book about this. Um, And when you hear that as a journalist, you kind of feel confidence that you're on the right track.
2: Well, speaking of the reaction of, I always knew someone would write a book about this, probably a lot of those people were basing that thought on the colorful cast of characters involved here, as we mentioned before. And so there is perhaps none more colorful than Bob Duggan, who is the CEO of PharmaCyclics. Tell us a little bit about Bob and how he factors into this story.
3: I'll share one insight that I found through the reporting uh, that I found surprising, uh, which is that when I would talk to people in biotech about Bob Duggan, uh, they were very uh, dismissive, especially when I would try and put them um in in the moment of when he first wrests control of pharmacyclics from its founder Richard Miller um he, this was a person who had no biotech experience zero um he, he didn't even have a college uh degree um uh, as i write in the book he, he's literally learning about human biology from children's books while he's CEO of pharmacyclics um and um you know, had previously been a successful businessman, um, you know, with businesses ranging from chocolate chip cookies to uh, computer networking equipment, but but never, never, you know, on, on a biotechnology or drug development level. Um, and uh, a lot of people, I think at the time, were kind of confused by this. However, uh, what I found um, interesting is when I talked to uh, the investment community, and I would try to take them back to the, that early era of pharmacyclics. uh They all told me that when Bob took over Pharmacyclics, they were really excited. They were like they viewed this guy as a winner um whose businesses all succeeded um and it didn't bother them that he had no uh experience in the industry, and they they certainly didn't care. Uh, that he was a Scientologist um, which was uh, you know another issue that that people would would talk about um, so I thought that was kind of an interesting dynamic that kind of difference of opinion in in the investment community versus um, you know in, in the biopharma sector itself
0: yeah I've had that experience too talking with investors about how much um, they place on former business success. And I I think of that in the realm of Sam Waxall, who, of course, you know, is very biotech focused. Um, But, you know, I remember, you know, he he obviously has a past, but I remember talking to people who were investing in his, you know, sort of next stage company, Cadman. um, And they were like, you know, he successfully developed a drug and sold that company. We're going to put money behind him, regardless of the fact that he went to jail for insider trading. So, you know, they really do place that, that value value on previous business success. And it's so interesting in the, you know, in Bob Duggan's case, because his former business success, as you pointed out, was not in biotech. I want to dig into the Scientology aspect of this, because the way you portray it in the book, you don't really get, I mean, people know about Scientology. So maybe you didn't feel like you had to get into all the like stuff about Scientology. But like, almost the way it's portrayed in terms of Bob Duggan is like, it see, it sounds reasonable. Like he looks up the definitions of words and stuff like that. And like, and you know, he, he really believes in himself and it all sounds like good stuff. So like, it honestly inspired me to like watch that documentary going clear. Cause I was like, I got to remind myself about Scientology. And then I watched it and I was like, oh yeah, whoa, there's a lot of stuff here. So how did you treat the Scientology aspect of this as regards to how you were telling this story?
3: You know, um, First of all, you're right, Meg, I didn't want to write a book about Scientology, and this book is not about Scientology. However, you know Scientology has played a big role in in Duggan's life, and um, you know it's, it definitely influences, and you know he's very proud of that how you know the way he runs his businesses, um, and he definitely brought uh, aspects of Scientology to to Pharmacyclics and, and what, he, what he's learned from it. Um, And so I wanted to tell tell that story uh, without a bias or uh, preconceived notion um, or, um, you know, some of the, you know, very big controversies that have surrounded that religion. You know, I I acknowledge that it's a controversial religion um, in America. It certainly has become that from its kind of original counterculture uh, roots in in, uh, Southern California. Um, But, but uh, I I just, I wanted to treat it, I guess, with empathy a little bit um, um, and, and not um, prejudge it.
1: One thing that struck me about the book was it, and and we should note that, you know, obviously a lot of the book deals with uh, Bob Duggan and Pharmacyclics and the development of, uh, of Imbruvica, but it also deals with another BTK inhibitor uh, now called calquence it's on the market and and that you know the foundation of that company was from a, a team of people who were at pharmacyclics who left the company Uh, Some were fired uh, who were sort of disgruntled and felt like they were robbed uh, of maybe money that they would have made from pharmaceuticals. And they, you know, they found another BTK inhibitor. They found another investor in the name of a hedge fund manager by the name of Wayne Rothbaum to form this company called Acerta, which eventually developed this other drug. Um, And I think what's interesting to me about the book was is, you know, these central characters, right, Bob Duggan, Wayne, Wayne Rothbaum the two sort of money guys, the guys leading this to me, they come across as sort of very unlikable uh, in that they're, al- they're motivated almost entirely <laughs> to me, they seem to be motivated by like greed, resentment, ego, revenge. Um, you know, they don't treat people very well. Um and, and in another context, you would see these characters and you would want them to fail. But here in this story, the story that you tell, Nathan, you know, they don't fail, obviously. They succeed. And as a result, you know, these two life-saving cancer medicines are approved, right? Patients who have cancer are benefiting from these drugs, which is, you know, again, a success story. Like, how do we how should we reconcile those two things?
3: Um, well, first of all, I just want to, like, say, like, let's look at Bob dug in for a second. Like the reason he got involved in this game uh, initially was because his son died, um, from cancer at the age of twenty twenty six, 26. Um, and so I don't think he was solely motivated, uh, uh, by, by money. I think, um, you know, these are complex people and they have, uh, different motivations, uh, but they definitely are, you know, business people. And I think that there's a risk reward, um, that kind of hovers over, um, the way we develop drugs, uh, in, in our, in our system. Um, and I think that this, what I tried to do Adam with this book is kind of like in an unvarnished way, uh, show that, um, you know, I, 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 you know, the reality of it. Um, and, you know, I think uh, my hope is that if you think about the public policy debates today about, you know, drug prices and, and safety of and efficacy of drugs. Um, you know, I think, you know, some of that uh, kind of public policy debate is like really off the rails. And I thought if I could play like a tiny little role in this and like show, like inform people, like this is this is how these things actually happen. Like this is where cancer drugs actually come from. And so now you can like understand where it comes from. Um, and now you can engage in the debate. Yeah, I think, you know, but, Nathan, I...
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I I didn't mean that as a criticism. Like, I I actually I actually commend you for it. I think that in some way, like you are sort of revealing kind of the one of sort of maybe an ugly truth about drug development and biotech and pharma. Right. That, you know, money is a big motivator. Um, And we hear a lot about. You know, putting patients first and all that. And I think that that plays a role and and probably motivated in some respect, both Wayne and Bob in this. But, you know, money also played a huge role. Um, And I think you kind of talk openly about that in this book, which I I commend you for. I think that, you know, that's like an honest, uh, an honest interpretation, an honest telling of of how a lot of drugs get developed.
3: It's the way all drugs get developed, um, and I didn't take it as a criticism at all, Adam. Uh, what, but I was trying to get to is is, um, is 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 kind of the point that you know th- this is this is how this in, this interplay of, of investors requiring a reward in order to take an enormous amount of risk is absolutely the way drugs are developed today, and particularly cancer drugs, which are incredibly expensive. Uh, uh, to develop and you know i just I, the uh, the economist uh wrote a, a review of my book that I thought was very generous uh last week and and the reviewer i thought asked a really smart question at the end of the review, which was like there's got to be a better way, essentially, he was saying, like to do this, you know, like it, all this testosterone and cash soap process, like there just has to be a better way. And I think that's a great question. But right now, sitting in my seat, I'm not aware of another way that has been successful. I mean, if you look at, like, China, like, they've never been able to do this. And even the China biotechs that exist, they all operate in our system. Like, look at Beijing, right, which is uh, somewhat related to this book as well, right? Like, you know, they're just another biotech company in the stock market um, trying to get financing and uh, making risk-reward decisions uh, in in their development. So this is the way that we know how to create cancer drugs. There might be other ways, but, but they're unproven.
2: Well, speaking of that review, I'm curious, you know, what has the reaction been, uh, both from people who are enmeshed in this world and maybe know some aspects of this story to the way that you render it, but also to people outside of it who kind of to that point are looking at this postmortem of what is unquestionably obviously a business success, but also a clinical and scientific success, and seeing that the means by which it came about have all these sharp elbows and large bank accounts and, you know, maybe not the kind of stuff that we'd like to think goes into scientific innovation?
3: Uh, I mean, the book's been out for, for about a week and a half and I, I Damian, I've, re- I've really been overwhelmed by the, uh, by the response. Uh, it's been, it's been really nice to see after years of work, um, to see the, the book connect with readers, uh, this way. And all three of you will know that, 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 that the reactions that are most touching are the ones that that you get from patients um, and and to a certain extent from doctors. And and those are really, um, really heartfelt. Um, I have received a lot of messages from people in the biotech uh, world, and they seem to really be responding to this. And um, I think, I mean, my interpretation, I'm speculating, is that I guess the book kind of rings true for them, you know, even if they were not directly involved in the development of these drugs, um, they, they can they can see, you know, their their professional lives um, in, in this in this story. And um, I think they want I think they want people to know what they do. I, you know, I, w- one thing that struck me is that there are so many amazing and dedicated people who work in this industry. And, yeah, they want to get rich and, yeah, they want to make money. Um, and again, as Adam pointed out, I'm I'm not shying away from that. Um, but I think they credibly, a lot of them want to make a difference uh, for patients and they, they go to work every day and they sit in their cubicles and offices and work in their labs and medical centers and really like want to make a, a difference. And I think they get a lot of crap, um, you know, out there because, um, of, of the outrage over drug prices and, and, and the, in my opinion, toxic public debate, uh, around that. And uh, I think I think they want people to know what they do and know their story. And, and and that's my sense. But but I'm speculating a little.
0: Do you think that the book will break through in that discussion, though, because it is a great lens into particularly the business side of, of how these drugs get developed and the money that goes through it and, you know, how much risk it it Takes, but at the same time, I think it has the lens of the investment community um, a, a lot behind it, and you really kind of say some of the quiet things out loud in the book. Um, one one part that I screenshotted as I was reading it on my phone um, was. Uh, about the reception to uh, a paper on ibrutinib uh, when it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. You wrote, quote, here was a cancer medicine that really made a difference, extending life in CLL patients in a way no other available medicine could. For financial investors, the beauty of the drug from an economic perspective was that even though the drug worked, It didn't work too well. Ibrutinib was not a magic bullet cure. The cancer was never fully cleared from the blood and rarely went away completely. There were few complete remissions. It was, in crass terms, a subscription model. Patients would need to take a pill once a day, every day for a long time, years. And of course, we all know know, from, from covering this Investors love drugs like that. That has been one of the key questions with single, you know, time therapies, like gene therapies. You start to hear from investors, when are you going to dose again? When, like the medical excitement around the drug is that it, it you shouldn't have to dose it again. So you know, did you feel a little bit cynical about about the way these things get funded and and just the way people think about them and the way perhaps they they have to think about them? I mean, just because of the way the system is? You
3: know, Meg, I'm just a reporter, so I, I really just wanted to report the reality of it and, and try to be as honest about it as possible. Um, and then, you know, other, you know, people can come to their own conclusions. I, I, you know, I do think that, you know, these things are, are, it's just a fact, you know, like this is how our system kind of works. And, and you know, if, if you look at a subscription model, you know, I, I like my Netflix, um, uh, you know, t- television, uh, but I understand and accept that there's an economic model behind it. And, you know, drug development can't live outside that system. Um, I know it's a little bit more sensitive because these are life and death issues. You know what? What I will say with the Brutinib is, no one sat down and said, "How can we create a BTK inhibitor drug that will have to be taken chronically for years?" Like that was never a discussion, right? That's just what happened. Right? It's not what the goal was. Um, and I, what I will say, Meg, is like I agree with you so much. And even within the industry, there's tremendous confusion about this. Like. You know, I wrote about CERTA and how at the end there was a deal to sell the company to AstraZeneca. And I felt in reporting there was a lot of outrage within the company about the dilution of the, of the stock options that the employees had. And it it did strike me that some of the people were upset about the concept of um, equity dilution in the sale, which is you know really just part of the system, right? It's just every every startup that's sold has dilution of some sort, um, and you know some of them were, were very upset because of the um, extreme nature of that dilution, and that's you know that's I get into that in the book, but but I did feel that some of these biotech employees were just upset about the idea that their their stock was being diluted at all. Um, but that's kind of standard in Silicon Valley. So, so I, I think there's confusion about this generally uh, about the how money interplays and, and the role that it plays uh, in in drug development, just like it does in, in every other uh, you know business pursuit.
1: Nathan, I want to ask you about another person uh, that you write extensively in the book. His name um, that's Ahmed Hamdi, uh, who you know kind of a kind of starts off. Uh, as a kind of i would call him maybe more of an altruistic scientist type you know he was a one of the early folks in Pharmacyclics uh developing ebrutinib you know eventually gets fired right by by bob duggan uh leaves uh you know he's a kind of kind of a recurring character in the book and then he he actually becomes one of the founding team members of uh, of Assurda, the the A in Assurda is, is is Ahmed, is his his first name. Tell us about him because I think a lot of the, the issues that we're talking about about how people maybe kind of come into the industry and then sort of maybe they they get educated or they get maybe a little turn a little bit more cynical about how things really work. Tell tell us about Ahmed Hamdi.
3: You know Ahmed, uh, you know really, I think he's a central figure of of, the, of this story of, of BTK inhibitors and uh, deserves a tremendous amount of credit. Uh, for helping to get these, these drugs uh, to patients. Um, and, you know, here's a guy who starts off in, in Egypt and, and, and is a doctor, and he just continues to move west, you know, to the United States and eventually to California. And, you know, I think he really um, got hooked on this idea that you can uh, be part of this industry that was founded uh, in South San Francisco at Genentech and then kind of grew um, and you can um, help uh, create drugs uh, that can really make a huge difference uh, for patients. and And he's really uh, about scientific advancement and scientific recognition. You know, he's really he gets excited about those things. And at the same time, um, also also make money. And I think that's what uh, attracted him to California and, and to to be playing a role in this industry. and and I think that what, what attracts a lot of people. But it's really hard. And, and there are these huge forces, you know, that he confronts, um, you know, including some very big personalities. And they're hard to navigate. Um, I know they're there. I think they're hard to navigate for many people, you know, who have to deal with uh, bosses and investors and expectations and uh, politics and, and all those things. And I think he just, you know, does the best he can uh th- throughout the book um to to try and 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 push himself uh and the and the and the drugs forward and he learns a lot of hard lessons uh along the way cuz this is this is this is tough stuff um and um what i really appreciate about him is uh he just he keeps going you know he just keeps going through you know you see it in the book like he just keeps moving forward uh, even with setbacks um, and, and, you know, the, the setbacks um, make the, the wins uh, all the more meaningful, um, but they're also kind of hard to come, come by. You know, it's not a simple arc, uh, I think, his his story.
2: Well, the book is available wherever books are sold. It is called For Blood and Money. Its author is Nathan Vardy. Nathan, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thanks so much for having me. It was a real pleasure to talk to all three of you.
1: That does it for another episode of The Read Out
2: Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
0: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Aminato and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel.
1: We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and who should play Bob Duggan in the movie. <laughs> you can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at
2: statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts.
0: See you next week.